The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Acura, the presenting sponsor of the 2015 Sundance Film Festival. Check out the all-new Acura TLX at Acura.com or test drive one for yourself at your local Acura dealer. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Tales from the Decrypt Edition. It's Wednesday, January 21st, 2015. On today's show, The Imitation Game stars Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan Turing, the British codebreaker and computer pioneer who, after helping his country win World War II, was persecuted by it for his homosexuality. And then Togetherness is the latest super premium gourmet TV offering from HBO. It's a comedy about the contemporary state of marriage, or would be if everyone were white and upper middle class. And finally, Celine chooses as its new it girl, Joan Didion, inducing one think journalist at least to ask, are brains the new beauty? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. All right, before we uh, dig in here, um, Julia, do we do we have some business today? Yes, I have a few pieces of business, not least of which is to mention what our Slate Plus segment is. Uh, we are going to grill Dana about the Oscar noms, which came out last week. And there's always some controversy, but for some reason, this year's round of Oscar noms seemed... There's actually something to talk about for yeah, a Yeah, there's, there's more controversy than usual. So we will, we will get her take on the Fuhrer and the hoopla surrounding the hoopla machine of the Oscars. And then also there are a couple live events coming up that I wanted to share with our listeners. Outward Slate's LGBTQ blog is doing a live show at City Winery in New York on February 3rd. That'll feature June Thomas, our own beloved, Brian Lauder, Mark Stern, and Leah Delaria, the uh, wonderful singer and actress who plays Boo on Orange is the New Black, among other things, and has written for Slate a few times. So you can check that out. We'll post links to where you can buy tickets on our show page. And then also a brief announcement. I am appearing on Ask Roulette, the podcast where you get asked random questions cold, and then you get to ask other random questions of people cold, alongside Ted Leo, which is pretty exciting, at Housing Works on January 29th. Tickets for that are still available at askroulette.net. So come see me. Come see Leah Delaria. Come out, come out, wherever you are. So that's Ted Leo, but no pharmacists. I don't know. One of my, I guess I can just ask him, did you bring the pharmacists? Or I could just ask yeah. him to play a song. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if there will be music or nay, but I'm excited. That and sounds really cool. You guys cool. have to help me cook up a, a like interesting question to ask. I have to listen too. to the podcast to see what kinds of questions they want. It's a little bit like the Political Gabfest Conundrum show sometimes, because sometimes the questions are like uh, theoretical, hypothetical, but I think sometimes they're just personal too, which will be interesting. I hate talking about personal things, <laughs> so maybe I'll just get flummoxed. <laughs> uh, come see my flummox mint, January 29th, askroulette.net. All right, Steve, let's do a show. All right, well, moving on. The Imitation Game is the newish film directed by Morton Tildum and starring Benedict Cumberbatch. It's a biopic of the newish variety that is it tells the story of a historical figure focusing on a signal event in his or her life. In this instance, the film focuses on Alan Turing's work for the British government at Bletchley, where mathematicians such as Turing labored around the clock to crack the Nazi code. Let's, uh, why don't we listen to a snippet from the movie and then we'll see if we can decrypt it. That's what you're doing here, the top-secret program at Bletchley. You're trying to break the German Enigma machine. What makes you think that? It's the greatest encryption device in history, and the Germans use it for all major communications. If the Allies broke Enigma, well, <laughs> this would turn into a very short war indeed. Of 
course that's what you're working on. But you also haven't got anywhere with it. If you had, you wouldn't be hiring cryptographers out of university. You need me a lot more than I need you. I, I like solving problems, Commander. And Enigma is the most difficult problem in the world. No, Enigma isn't difficult. It's impossible. The Americans, the Russians, the French, the Germans, everyone thinks Enigma is unbreakable. Good. Let me try, and we'll know for sure, won't we? That was a nice little exposition sandwich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Dana, I'm curious. I have a funny feeling I'd know how you felt about this movie without even asking you, but uh, is it one a giant exposition sandwich, as the clip uh, indicates? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, this movie did not sit well with me when I saw it, and in the weeks that have passed since, at reading more and more about you know discrediting of its historical narrative in ways that we should talk about, whether they matter or not, and, uh, and just sort of the way that it's being packaged for the Academy Awards, I'm liking it less and less. Put it this way. Benedict Cumberbatch is great in this role. I do think that he's sort of repeating his ticks from his Sherlock role on, on British TV. Um, but he he is a standout for sure. And his, his nomination doesn't seem, you know, too depressing. But this is just a very standard to me, Weinstein Brothers, Miramax, feel good, Anglophile, sort of vaguely socially progressive drama that just seems so perfectly packaged and sanitized for award season that I was never able to enter into the story, even though the actual true story of Alan Turing's life is fascinating and much rougher edged and rawer than the version of it that we get here. I would also say Mm. we should mention the reason we're talking about it, despite Dana's general disregard for it, is that it clocked six, seven, a bunch of Oscar nominations. So I think it was not totally clear um, how it would fare in in the race. Until right, yeah, this the, is part of our usual yearly journey back to go catch, pick up on the big Oscar-nominated movies that we didn't manage to talk yeah, about. Yeah, so this, this one has successfully, the, the Weinsteinian campaign has achieved success and it got a, a passel of nominations. Yeah, there aren't too many movies this award season that just kind of make my skin crawl, and this one is sort of one of them. I would not be happy to see this go through garnering tons of awards. All right, so Julia, skin crawl or tingle? It was a bit leaden, I thought. I, I just felt like this this movie was entertaining, great costumes, pretty old computer machines with knobs, Benedict Cumberbatch cheekbones. It was totally competent, but in no way inventive, inspiring, or amazing. And there is a sense of opportunity lost, I think, because the story here, the raw material, is so mesmerizing. And I think there are a couple of ways in which it could have gone deeper, but it just felt pat to me. And and the best mm-hmm. example I have of it is that there's this stupid leaden phrase that gets said to touring by his schoolboy crush in a flashback, which is, oh God, help me remember. I know it because like, it comes up several times in my review. The, Sometimes it's the people no one imagines anything of that do things no one could imagine. Yes, and then it gets said freaking three times. Like, it's a stupid, let-in yeah. biopic sentence. I'm sure no one yeah. actually said that to him. And even if they did, like, let it land once, and then in the next moment, let us recall the motif. Don't actually... So the childhood guy says it to Turing, then Turing says it to Kira Knightley when he recruits her. And then she says it back to him. And then she says it back yeah. to him when he's depressed later on. Like, come on. Right. Uh, right. No, the for- the fortune cookie gets passed around one too many times. I mean, the problem I had with the movie was that it would be one thing if that were the fortune cookie at the end of this incredibly satisfying meal, but it's not that. In fact, most of the movie is built out of exactly that same stuff. It's like a eight-course fortune cookie, basically. <laughs> and the problem is you never feel as though you're looking at real people relating to one another in a plausibly real way. They all 
always seem like uh, dramatis personae uh, relating to one another dramatically. There's, I think, such a thing as too competent a movie, and this is one of them. It's just there's no opportunity is missed to take a re- the raw, rough raw material of Turing's fascinating life and turn it into utterly dramatic uh, event after event after event. It's not just that you don't believe that they're telling you the real story. It's that you believe that they believe you wouldn't be interested in the true story. It's like an amazing lack of trust, yeah. uh, actually, that seems to be behind the movie. And and you just, by the end of it, you don't believe as though you've seen something that corresponds to reality. And in fact, it didn't take a lot of fact-checking, fussy, you know, persnickety fact-checking to determine it really is not the real story of Alan Turing. And we should, I mean, we should talk about that more globally, especially in light of our conversation last week about Selma, where we were giving Selma a pass for playing fast and loose with some facts, I think. But there are two aspects of this movie that it didn't seem to trust us to handle that I would have liked it better if it had gone deep on one or both. The first is the Mm -hmm. actual cryptography, the science, like what technically they were doing, how it worked. There's a lot of like hanging red wires and turning knobs and staring ansily at the machine, like hoping that it will stop ticking and have decoded something. But there isn't much depth to the math or the science or the cryptography. And like, all right, I showed up for a period movie about cryptography, about breaking the biggest, like the the greatest code break in history from this seminal figure in the world of all the digital stuff we use all the time. Like, trust me, fill me in a little bit. It's all, you know, there's some like, there's kind of a Claire Danes wall of like crazy diagrams and weird circles and dots. And then there's a like, you can never understand my machine. And it's like, well, give give me a shot. And then the other thing is like, I think that the way the movie handles his homosexuality is a little bit twisted. Like they show him as basically uh, like tortured, essentially autistic automaton type who, you know, apart from the like, white chinoed knee pressed against the white chinoed knee of his schoolboy chum in a flashback. There's like no physical contact, romance, no sense that his homosexuality could be any sort of satisfying part of his life, that it's even, even if it's a shame-filled part of his life, that it's an actual part of his life. Like his homosexuality is an off-screen construct that the movie doesn't trust us to like handle in a direct emotional way. And so as a result, he himself seems like a cipher and it feels like you know, we all in this in 2015, we all understand that um, this was a tragedy and and a grave injustice on the part of the British government. But also the movie kind of wants to have it both ways and doesn't want us to actually experience him as a gay person. Yeah, it just doesn't seem to trust us on either the math or the possible, you know, gay love stories at the center of Turing's life. But I mean, you know, it raises the more general issue, Dana, about how history has now become a fashionable source material for films for this is pretty multiplex friendly import and uh, I object to it really because it's become an excuse to find or arrive at no emotional truth at the heart of the material itself if you know what I mean that that because we're fooled into believing we're seeing something that really happened the expositional quality of it is dominant as opposed to whatever emotional truth is being built up in the internal dynamics of the film itself. And so you kind of are being told this double lie, right? You're sort of being told, well, it really happened this way. And that's why we're telling it this way, which is false. But you're also not seeing something real develop or or we're not holding a film to the standard of achieving an emotional truth internal to its own aesthetic. Right. Well, we should throw Mr. Turner on the log pile here, right? Mr. Turner is a movie that basically doesn't bother at all with the biographical facts or truths of 
Turner's life. And because it makes no claim, you kind of don't care. Like, you don't want to go back and say, did that really happen? Did it really happen that way? You sort of get that this is a movie that's using the life of the painter Turner to make a point about emotional existence and perception. With Selma, Mm -hmm. it feels a little bit closer to a, a biopic where they've taken care to, you know, get the names right of King's compatriots and actually show them and show how it was a collaboration. And, you know, a lot of historians, particularly historians in the Lyndon B. Johnson Industrial Complex, have complained about the movie's less than generous portrayal of Johnson. And I do think, you know, as we discussed last week, the notion that Johnson explicitly sicked the FBI on King may be a bridge too far. But the notion that there was tension between King and Johnson about when exactly to pursue voting rights and in what way, to me, that feels like a fudge that is fair. But this movie is full of scenes where you're like, well, there's no emotional depth here, which means that it's just the history that's interesting. So then the history, you know, there's a there's a moment in the middle of the scene. And I suppose, spoiler warning, if you actually want to see this, skip, you know, four or five minutes ahead. But right after they've cracked the code, I don't have to spoil that they cracked the code. Everybody knows <laughs> the Allies won the war. They, they did crack the code. But after they cracked the code, there's a moment where they all night, the five of them who cracked the code, then go about personally decoding messages themselves to like identify where all the ships are, which seemed to me totally implausible. Like, wouldn't they get a lot of help? It's not like they it, like they couldn't call someone at 11 p.m. to be like, we cracked the code. Now we're... Right. I read somewhere that there were actually 9,000 people working on this project. <laughs> right. So they reduce it, you know, to this core so group of four or five. So five people in the room. And then they realize this like incredible incredibly interesting moral conundrum of having cracked an enigma, which is they can recognize where all the ships are. And then bright Kira Knightley, Kinera Knightley, identifies that, oh, crap, this like British passenger convoy is about to get sunk by some U-boats. And then one of the five codebreakers is like, that's my brother's ship. We have to stop that. We have to stop the attack. And then, of course, cool, logical Cumberbatch interjects and says, no, we can't. We have to let those British passengers die because if we stop this attack, they'll know we've cracked the code and everything we've been working on for two years will be for naught because they'll change the machine by the end of the week, which you're like, whoa, that's first of all, a crazy moral dilemma. How much was that moral dilemma apparent in the, in the workings of um, the British military? Probably some. And then you're like, was that, did that guy really have a brother? Like, did the guy really have a brother on a ship? You're like, I can't. It feels too good to be true. But you, you're left wondering these, like, did it happen? Did it happen? So they take out the actual drama of Turing's life, which is like his scientific achievements and the actual emotional struggle of someone who's gay, apart from like being sad that it hurts Karen Knightley's feelings, like what it's actually like to be gay. And then they just insert all this, this drama, which like, yes, World War II was very dramatic, but it, 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 why does this bother me in ways that the Selma doesn't? Is that fair? Because just... it's so it's so distrusting of the intelligence of the audience to have repeated like fist fights at exactly the moment that the machine might work, but in marches the you know morally insensate hierarchical stuffy old World War One officer, you know uh, this hidebound leftover from the previous World War who doesn't understand your mathematical ways. It's really pitched kind of at that level, and there are actual like fist fights and. We're, we're not only going to shut this program down, we're going to come in here with crowbars and destroy your machine. You know, it's it's who it's like it's like the history channel for, you know, space aliens or something. It's like it's just pitched at a level that, you know, is very hard to understand. All right. You're like getting me head up into how much I hate this movie. But I feel like we need to give Dana the last <laughs> word. 
Well, all I would add, and this constitutes something of a spoiler of the ending, although it's a historical fact that pretty much anyone who's read about Alan Turing, I mean, even even a brief summary of his life would know this, but Alan Turing commits suicide at the end of this movie. It happens off screen. We're told about it in a, in a little legend at the end of the, of the film. And the reason he does, or at least a, a part of the reason he does, apparently, is that he was chemically castrated by the British government for the crime of being a sodomist. He was threatened with jail time and told that he could choose jail time or this chemical castration drug, and he chose that. And uh, there's some argument about whether the depression from that was what led him to commit suicide, or even whether his cyanide poisoning death was, in fact, intentional. It's possible that it it might have been an accident from an experiment he was doing. Anyway, all of that is incredibly fascinating and sad in real life. And in the movie, I think, is very much glossed over and turned into kind of a very tidy gay martyr story in a way that I found quite disturbing. I just felt that it was a very unuplifting and dark story that was somehow being packaged into this into this piece of um, of Hollywood feel goodness and it rubbing the wrong well, way. Like, it's kind of like, isn't it good that we can look back now and be on the right side of history? Poor Alan Turing. Mm. Can I make one confession, though? Kind of liked Kira Knightley in this movie, or Kanira Knightley, as I've been call- enjoying calling her. But I, like, and I, I sort of don't think of her as if someone I'm fond of on the like celebrity industrial landscape, but Actually, when I think about it, I think she's usually pretty good in movies. She seems smart. It seems like there's some intelligence under that, like, whippet frame uh, and those those um, crooked teeth. Well, she's right for this role because it has a kind of this whole movie, as I think we've been discussing, has this kind of gloss of twinkly cuteness. And I think she sort of fits into that. I mean, I have to admit that Keira Knightley, for me, is someone who the minute I hear she's in a movie, my interest in that movie drops by at least 10 percent. It's not that I dislike her, but I never find her. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh no it just the movie immediately goes its highest possible grade is a b plus because of Kira knightley but it's not that you dislike her i just i just never think of, of her as somebody who brings like a huge amount of i don't know inner, inner life or energy like she can she can do this kind of role really well this is almost a comic role in some ways you know she's sort of a foil for the benedict cumberbatch character and they have this brief engagement but then they sort of become friends and i don't know i feel like she's a little bit of a mary poppins kind of figure in this role and and she's fine for that but kira knightley is not somebody who gets me gets me all head up about you know what what richness she's going to bring to it right maybe she she's just fine she has twinkle but not depth which fits with this film she looks great in the period costumes, and she seems realistic doing the crossword puzzles and the hard math problems. <laughs> <laughs> I like Dana Dams with faint praise, the podcast. <laughs> but, the, but the bigger problem, I think, is the movie's whole vision of, you know, what it is to be this smart, right? It's this movie about incredibly smart people that's kind of aimed at an audience of of Dumbos, you know, and <laughs> treat, treating us like we could never possibly understand what's going on on the, the blackboard of Benedict Cumberbatch. And so that in itself just it turns me off. I love it. Um, all right. Well, the movie is The Imitation Game. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan Turing. Uh, go check it out. And if you have already, come to our Facebook page and tell us what you think of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, uh, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia. What do we have? The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you this week by Acura. Acura understands the power of performance. How every moment should be infused with emotion and every movement should evoke a thrill. A great performance is what Acura wants drivers to experience every time they get behind the wheel, which is why Acura is a proud official presenting sponsor of the Sundance Film Festival. Check out the all-new Acura TLX at Acura.com or test drive one for yourself at your local Acura dealer. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, moving on. 
Togetherness is the new comedy from HBO. It's courtesy of the Duplass brothers. It stars Mark Duplass and Melanie Linsky as a married 40-something L.A. couple with a baby, but also something else, a fresh pair of house guests, one of whom is the husband's old friend. He's a failing schlub actor. And the other is the wife's foxy sister. Comedy ensues. Let's listen to a clip. Right. So in this clip, we're hearing the house guests. We're hearing the pal, played by Steve Zissis, who's also one of the co-creators of the show, whose name is Alex. And then the foxy sister, an apt term, Steve. I give you permission to call Amanda Pete Foxy. She's just too foxy not to call Foxy. Tina, and they're sitting on the porch wrestling for who gets control of the living room. What is your plan? After I eat these Oreos? Yes. Or before? Oh, what I meant was, are you leaving tomorrow? I don't know yet. <laughs> are you gonna fucking decide? It's tomorrow. Why? Why? Why do you? Why so many questions? I don't. No, no. I was just curious. You know what the, you know how long the living arrangements are gonna be. Oh. Like so. You know, oh, oh. I see. You know. Like, I see. You're trying to edge me out. No, I just think that you know it's. Like, when I stay somewhere, I like to have, you know, like, my stuff and my space. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I can't sleep with just any circumstances. I need it to be quiet. I need it to be dark. You know, I need Wait, you need things. it to be quiet? Oh. Uh-oh. Do you know what a deviated septum is? Oh, no, 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 no. It's going to be fine. This is what it's going to be like. Honestly, I don't think that's funny. At all. That's real. Well, why don't you get an operation or something? Get a get a hotel room. It's easy. I'm her sister. It like makes sense that I sleep here. You get a hotel room. I have no money. Well, that's pathetic. Are you are you kidding? I know it's horrible. All right, Dana. Well, did you connect with this uh, show at all? You know, while I don't think that that clip really shows its its strong points pretty well, I, I did like this show. I think it has promising elements and could turn into something interesting. But I also have to agree with the kind of blanket of media critique I see about the uh, the sameness of the milieu of this show to so many new prestige cable shows. I mean, I, I like the Duplass brothers. I like that they're kind of creating a thing together. And Melanie Linsky is always wonderful. And I'm happy to see her have a bigger part than she, she usually gets. And it seems like it could turn into an interesting and complex one. But it is true that if you think of the programming block that this exists in, right, it's between girls and looking or girls is between it and looking. I'm not sure that's a three comedy block on HBO on Sunday nights, which all takes place in this world of young, relatively young, attractive, white 20-somethings in New York or L.A., you know, the kind of the coastal elites that um, that cable dramas are always being accused of focusing on. And even though some of the individual stories and characters in this might seem to be going somewhere interesting, it does make me feel like I've seen this kind of dialogue before. As as the wife of a producer on Looking, I will have to point out that there are many characters of color on Looking. However, yeah, no, it's like rich people like to watch TV shows about rich people. Should we throw our hands up in dismay? Possibly. But I kind of think in, I, I really liked the show. I thought with a few hiccups, it was just the chemistry of it was great and vivid. And I enjoyed these relationships and watching them form and look forward to watching the rest of the season. Like I, I laughed a lot at the show, which is one thing that you might want a comedy to do for you. So I'm inclined mm. to be impressed, particularly by three of the four performances. Like, I basically think Melanie Linsky is amazing. I think Amanda Peet is really fun in a slightly different role. Like, usually she plays hyper-competent bitch boss or hyper 
hyper-competent, hot trophy wife, slightly vapid. And she's so frayed and desperate and antic. And I really think she's like incandescent. And then Steve Ziss is, to, is like a revelation. He's so fun and deft. You know, as much as I love Amanda Peet in this role and basically in everything, Julia, I kind of contest that it's not a typical role for her. I actually kept thinking of the sister character, the sort of slutty sister character that she played in Please Give in the Nicole Holof Center movie, oh, who seemed like she had a very right, similar right. dynamic with her kind of more together, domesticized older sister. I totally Catherine forgot Keener. that role. You're right. You're right. Okay. She's she's played a, a slutty sister before, too. But I just, she's, I don't know, the, to me, the... Writing is good, and the performances are transcendent in three of four cases, and I'm really excited to devour the rest of the show. I don't know. Am I giving it too much cover? Am I giving it, it too many uh, excuses? I am, I'm on the fence with it. I didn't connect with it as much as you did, um, but was charmed intermittently by it. But I have two questions about it. The first is that you know, Willa Paskin, the uh, TV critic for Slate, makes a very astute point, which is that a few years ago, you knew you were watching premium TV when there was a ton of violence, kind of large canvas violence. You know, obviously, The Sopranos was the turning point for that trend. But, you know, uh, The Wire, Breaking Bad, on and on, these very out-of-ordinary life, out-of-the-ordinary experiences kind of shows uh, really characterized premium TV weeds on and on and on. Now it seems to be a mirror to the audience or presumed audience for HBO and Showtime. There are these very small canvas comedy of manners, contemporary manners about early middle-aged affluent or in the case of girls, young affluent uh, white people, urban white people coming face to face with their own failings or how life has failed to completely service their sense of self. But the second related point is that marriage is coming in for some very interesting depictions within this context, that if the genre itself is defined by the disappointed hopes of spoiled rich people, at the centerpiece of that is the sense that marriage ought to have been something else. And I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Dana, am I barking up uh, the correct tree? I guess, I mean, the, the the show, did we talk about Married, the FX show Married? I don't think no, we've, we've ever I, taken on that we show. We mentioned briefly that we liked it when we interviewed Jenny Slade in L.A., but we never really discussed it as a show. But it, they do seem worth considering side by side. They're both kind of like toxic comedies about marriages that seem utterly dysfunctional, except for they kind of work anyway and maybe make you wonder whether all marriage is fundamentally dysfunctional. I don't know. They, they have similar worldviews. Right. And they both partake of that kind of um, cult of ordinariness that Steve was talking about, which I mean, which I would say it seems like that's something that pertains in the comedy universe, the half hour comedy, perhaps. I still think in the one hour drama, we're looking for the, you know, the strange, dark, edgy, you know, Breaking Bad type story that, that seems to inhabit a known familiar universe and then and then spins off into somewhere very right. dark. Right. That's a really good point. I mean, Willa draws the distinction in time between a couple of years ago and now, but I do think the shows, the hyper-realist shows are are these comedies, which is an inter- which is also interesting. It suggests, you know, for the for serialized drama, we want fantasy and violence, but we'd rather just like laugh at our own bleak lives or something like that. I do find this interesting. I find the relationship between this new trend towards holding a mirror up to your audience and also having marriage be possibly a centerpiece of a lot of these dramas. The two are related, I think, in an important way. And here's my guess. Here's my pop sociological uh, guesstimate as to why. I think it has something to do with when you get these establishing shots of the house that this show is about, we're clearly meant to see these people as wealthy enough to think they're at the top of uh, what is it called the hierarchy of needs 
or whatever, a Maslin, the Maslin hierarchy or whatever, that they're far enough up that pyramid that they're not thinking about paychecks, food on the table for their kid, you, you know, uh, being safe, warm, fed, housed, and reasonably well-educated. These concerns are completely off the table. Nonetheless, they have a sense an unending sense of their own lack of fulfillment and how, in fact, restricted and unfree they appear to be, at the center of which, of course, is marriage. I think there's something really interesting, Julia, going on with marriage right now, not only because it's this luxury, it's a luxury good for people who have, for the few people who still have traditional middle-class stable existences, but also because I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're, we're in this perfect vice people roughly of my generation and younger who are committed to the idea of marriage, who saw the culture of divorce in the 70s as it bled into the 80s a little bit, so younger than me as well, and how pernicious it was and how destructive, what lastingly destructive the culture of divorce was, who committed themselves to both the idea of marriage and raising kids. At the same time, no actual relationship can fulfill the high expectations we might have had for it. So, there's a very low propensity, to, I think statistically this is borne out, that there's a much lower propensity to divorce now among middle and especially upper middle class professional couples. At the same time, these are exactly the people who sort of expected everything from life and are shocked to discover they're not getting it. And it's exactly marriage that's going to bear the brunt of that. And and, and to me, I mean, the show is called Togetherness, which of course alludes to this commune, this kind of makeshift commune that they're forming. But at the center of that really is a marriage. And what that marriage is supposed to be is it's a worthy, to my mind, it's a worthy object of clever comedy of manners study. And I hope that they stick with it because it's, anyway, again, am I I talking sense over here? Is this the blow I took to my head the other day when I fell on the ice? No, I think it's really interesting. I mean, and I think there is, I mean, it would be, I would be curious to read someone really closely examining married in this show side by side and what the, the differences are in the way they portray their marriage. In some ways, the conflict in married is less real. There's more surface conflict and a stronger bond underneath, whereas here there's a lot of surface comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, uh, and, but underneath a sense of like, whoa, maybe there's like a gaping, yawning void here, and shit, what do we do about that? Right. Well, I was thinking in particular, well, both this and Married kick off their first episode with a, with a scene of the husband wanting to have sex with the wife and her not wanting to, basically, right? The establishment that their marriage is sexually inactive at that moment and the guy wants to fix it and the woman doesn't and uh, and this show i think is so much darker in you know the way it, it explores that difference in in desire and there's a scene i think the the, the best scene in the uh, in the pilot where melanie linsky tries to sort of stage this um dominatrix sex evening with with mark duplass and it comes to a comical and somewhat violent conclusion and the whole thing is a complete failure but i, I thought that scene was really terrific in the way it took the comedy of something that actually girls has done too. There's a moment when Lena Dunham takes Adam Driver on a sort of like, you know, journey through faux dominatrix land in a, in a sex scene. But this scene in togetherness, I, I thought 
brought both the ridiculousness, right, of appearing before a person you've known for many years, suddenly decked out as a dominatrix and acting like you have a new set of rules um, with with the actual sexual gulf that that lay between them. I also loved his begging for a Mm -hmm. snack through the whole scene. (laughs) My blood sugar's crashing. Can I please (laughs) just have a banana? (laughs) Just a banana. No, but I mean, and also there's another element to it, too, which I think is really interesting uh, and I think is coming up thematically in a lot of these uh, shows is that, you know, for century, you know, for, for decades, if not centuries, if not millennia, women have been trying to retrain men to be less like men and they finally have really? thanks to feminism somewhat well but you know what I mean to overcome maybe more traditionally patriarchal relationships right, between fair. men and women especially in a marriage right and now that that seems to be something like a realizable goal some women I think are confronting the fact that they I mean, it's the Mad Men fantasy, right? That there's this desire for or a longing for now that it's supposedly been transcended. There's a longing for a more traditional. I mean, she's frustrated that her husband is this kind of wimpy control freak who won't respond spontaneously sexually. And, you know, I think there's again, I think they're very the show's very clever about what exactly the vice is, right? That this new feminized man was something some women may have thought they really, really wanted and confronted with actually having it is enormously frustrating. Yeah, I mean, that, I understand what you're saying there. I think the reason I like this show is it feels much less, it feels much more nuanced than that. Like, I think that's a possible thread, but I also think, I mean, there's a hilarious scene between Melanie Linsky and Amanda Peet where she starts describing their sex life and it involves a pillow in a comical way and it's just a great, a great scene of, like, sisterly relating, which I also, I like the sister relationship within the show. I think it's pretty good. But right, she talks about wanting someone to be more spontaneous, dynamic, and rough with her. But then as she's sort of trying to break the rules of their pat sexual life, she's taking control and she's like, you can't, you won't dominate me. You won't be dominated, right? Like I, she, does, she, she doesn't know exactly what she wants, but she knows she wants something she's not getting. And the confusion and panic on Melanie Linsky's face during that sex scene is, is just incredible. Ever since uh, Heavenly Creatures, by the way, I've been waiting for Melanie Linsky to have the career that Kate Winslet got to have. You know, they were the two young teenagers in love in that in that great early Peter Jackson movie. You know, I never oh, wow. saw that movie. I did not put that together. Um, oh, it's such a good movie. I should yeah. see it. But yeah, she's to me like a revelation. I just think the, the ensemble is very strong. Hmm. All right. Well, the show is Togetherness. It's on HBO. It's part of their Sunday night lineup. Check it out. Tell us what you think. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. This is going to absolutely shock people who are fans of this show and are familiar with my famously fastidious over-preparation, habits of over-preparation. But um, I haven't really prepped an intro for this third segment because I have absolutely no idea what Selena is, You know, though I'm a huge fan of Joan Didion and know what she is. So I'll be able to participate in the discussion, but only after Julia Turner explains to me why it's so significant that Joan Didion, the octogenarian writer and legend, is uh, part of an ad campaign for this company. Okay, so Celine is a French fashion brand designed by Phoebe Philo. She's like probably the coolest of the fashion cool girl designers right now. Like her aesthetic, she was at Stella McCartney for a long time and then she struck out on her own and then hooked up with Celine. I think I have that uh, genealogy right. But she is known for sleek, logo-less, grown-up clothes that are sophisticated, stylish, but not trendy, interesting. Stark. Stark. Devoid of whimsy. There's no, there's not, you're going to find ruffles. You're going to find something like sculptured and structural, maybe white. And she's kind of revered 
for that severity and coherence of vision. She's not like, hey, let's throw some gold buckles on it and like we'll throw a model like ascending the steps of a private jet and like the the aspirational lifestyle you aspire to is to just like be rich and go to the Mediterranean. Like you're aspiring to something, I don't know, aesthetic if you're into Celine. Also, the clothes are insanely expensive and like nobody can afford them. It's like thousands and thousands of dollars for all of it. But they have anointed Joan Didion as their newest celeb. And there's a Jurgen Teller photo of her in, you know, with some kind of like pendant necklace and dark black sunglasses looking austere and imperious. And what's her actual garment? Just a black turtleneck, yeah, right? Yeah, it's just a black turtleneck, just looking super Joan Didion sitting on a couch. And the fashion world and like the smarty pants lady world was set a Twitter by the news that Joan Didion is the face of Celine. Is that a fair description, Dana? Did I do did I do it all justice? Yeah, definitely. I mean, but then almost immediately followed quickly by a backlash among the, those same Twitter smarties um, pointing out that Joan Didion has long been a fashion plate. It's not even her first ad campaign. She modeled for The Gap before in 1989. She started her career writing for Vogue and other women's magazines. And, you know, there's all sorts of famous um, photographs of, of Joan Didion looking fabulous against her sports cars and in her, her various chic outfits. So the idea that she would be some sort of an aspirational fashion plate doesn't seem like a new one. I think a bigger shock to me would be the fact that she's 80, that they wanted her to do it as an 80-year-old woman with no makeup on, you know, looking 80, and that she was willing to do it. Right. I mean, I think the question before the table here is big fashion brand takes smart, revered, genuinely excellent writer and turns her into a symbol of fashion. Is this good or bad for the smarts? Like, is this good or bad for smarty pants everywhere? Should we be like, yay, Joan Didion, like rake in those bucks. Let's let's have more cultural awareness. Or should we be like, mm, there's something like off and curdled here? I don't sense I don't think I can sense any curdledness at all. I'm I'm raking the bucks and she looks great in a turtleneck and you know, it's probably a little bit silly that so much Joan Didion love is braided in closely with a kind of aspirational glamour of her lifestyle, but that is also present in her writing. You know, her writing is mm-hmm. is very yeah. much especially her autobiographical writing, is full of all sorts of details that very subtly denote sort of um you know, class and sophistication Elegance, and wealth. dinner parties, Hollywood, California, multiple mm-hmm. homes, travel. They're super well connected. Yeah, exactly. No, absolutely. But what, if, if, Julia, refine that for me a little bit or make it so obvious that even I can't miss it. But what, what would we be begrudging here? Is it on the part of writers, women, women writers, intellectuals? Like who would be, on whose behalf would anybody be uh, up in arms about this? Well, okay. So the baseline interpretation, you know, and I saw this argument made somewhere is like, hey, like smart girls are in vogue these days. Like George Clooney married Amal. Oh, I can't remember her last name. Amaluddin. I'm like a bad, I get a like D plus in celebrity studies. Amal Amaluddin. I think so. Yeah. You know, brilliant, gorgeous, multiple language speaking lawyer. A bunch of the fashion blogs had fun with like, you know, Amal barely tolerates going to George's boring office party for like her like wan face at the Golden Globes. Like whatever, the 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 shtick of like the world's most eligible bachelor marrying a hot smarty pants. You know, p- score points for smart girls everywhere. And then a couple people filed this under the same thing. Like, oh, the coolest new accessory isn't a Birkin bag. It's a really smart lady. So they picked a great one for Celine. And Celine is the right sort of brand to do it. So hooray. Like, it's smart lady moment. But of course, if you are or fancy yourself to be a smart lady, you might have mixed feelings about 
being celebrated in a way that has more to do with status than actual celebration. It's not like they printed Joan Didion's work or Joan Didion wrote the ad copy or I mean, not that that's what you'd want either, but it's just the icon of Joan Didion that they want, not anything else. So is that troubling or is that just like, eh, it's fashion, who cares? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, yeah, they're lazily tapping into a set of signifiers about Joan Didion. No shit, you know, but but what fashion company is going to be above that standard? Right. That's totally. Yeah, I don't object. I mean, I, I don't really object to it. I would say that I wish that for every... Nobel, you know, Nobel Prize season that goes by with Philip Roth being mentioned as the person who scandalously didn't win it, we could also throw in Joan Didion. It seems to me she's as obvious a candidate being passed up as Roth is. But otherwise, I mean, she it's not as though the wrong writer is being celebrated for the wrong reasons. She's always been photogenic without being traditionally beautiful. And she's a truly a great American writer who, you know, late in her career is being re-recognized all over again. I mean, Year of Magical Thinking is her book that has sold by far and away the most copies. And it brought her back into Vogue. I don't think the Vogue about her is cheap or shallow. I will add, however, that a young writer named Molly Fisher in New York Magazine, Julia, took the other side of this issue, pointing out where in Joan Didion's own work, she's been critical of people who use literary taste as a kind of uh, taste signifier. Yeah, no, she that was a great essay that I would commend all of our listeners to go read. And she, and also has a great headline, which is liking Joan Didion is a trap or something like that, which is kind of great. But basically, it points out that in her work, she's been very critical of people who sort of elusively ALL refer to the excellent, exquisitely chosen things they enjoy as a way of signifying their depth and inner life. And, you know, so having become herself such a signifier is a little bit muddy if you really listen to the messages of her work and believe that she's kind of a piercing critic of the culture that she also glancingly refers to being a part of, which I think she is, although I also Mm -hmm. think she has it both ways and I don't mind being in that trap. One of the amazing things about just the tone and the verve of that essay is it struck me as a young woman writer's goodbye to all that, where the all that is Joan Didion and not New York City, that in a way Didion has become for young women writers what New York City was to the young Didion, this thing that's tantalizing, glamorous, uh, seductive in the extreme, but also at, beyond a certain point, throttle, maybe it starts to become throttling before you notice that it is. And I thought that that was just an, an, a great expression of brio or bria or whatever you want to call it on the part of someone I'm presuming is a fairly young writer. And I believe it was also that Molly Fisher essay in which she made the point that a young female writer aspiring to be a Joan Didion now would not be able to have that cryptic privacy and glamour that Joan Didion always sort of seems surrounded by a cloud of because she would be trailed by a bunch of her own embarrassing juvenilia and social media posts. And, you know, that 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 the creation of that kind of literary celebrity is maybe no longer possible. Right. Although it's possible to have restraint in the face of overwhelming social media. But it is it's interesting to hold up Joan Didion as an icon in a moment of the personal essay and endless oversharing and endless expression, because obviously one critique of Joan Didion is that so much of what she writes about is fundamentally about herself and her own lens on things. And yet she tends to be restrained and cloaked enough about what she shares that that doesn't it doesn't come at you as sort of the breathless look at my Tumblr. Let me tell you about the letter my boyfriend sent me, like endless info dump of a lot of personal essay writing prevalent on the internet today. 
So I, for many reasons, I don't mind Joan Didion being held up once again as something to aspire to, whether it's meant to make you buy expensive sunglasses or just think, hey, I'm glad this isn't a gauchely expensive jet ride that I'm meant to be aspiring to. Well, and we keep t- talking about young women and what Joan Didion represents to them. But I do think that another interesting aspect of this ad is that this is, a, a, as Julia said, a very expensive brand that can probably mainly be afforded by older women. And uh, and that, you know, there's an unmade up 80-year-old sitting on a couch advertising a sweater. I mean, that's, that's not nothing. I, I think that is sort of a refreshing element of this ad. Totally. It's great to see an actual wrinkled face in the pages of a fashion magazine. Mm. All right, I think we're in accord here. Yeah, we approve. Jen Didion and uh, Celine was a nice match. Yes, please. Uh, Dana and I are donning our our unwieldy sunglasses now and our hauteur, our icy hauteur and cool are rising. So I'm not sure we can even muster the enthusiasm to endorse Steve. I'm putting a Celine turtleneck and a pendant (laughs) on my birthday wish list, and then I'll be a great writer. I love it. All right. Well, now is the moment in our uh, show where we typically endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have? You know, I'm actually going to endorse one of the uh, the pieces of research that our, our new intern, Lindsay, found for us on, on Joan Didion that was fabulous that we didn't really get to, which was a, a piece by Adrian LaFrance in The Atlantic that focused essentially on um, on the place of fashion and fabric in Joan Didion's work. And she goes through and traces through some of her novels and Your Magical Thinking and Blue Nights, her, her book about her daughter's death, and just places that she talks about clothes or the place that she describes her um, her gold silk curtains and goodbye to all that, which is an image that anyone who's read that essay remembers. And uh, and that is something of, of Joan Didion's writing that always sticks with you. I mean, emblems of wealth and class aside, she is just a, a great sort of sensory describer of, of fashion and of, of, of objects. So um, that's worth looking at. Adrian LaFrance on Joan Didion in The Atlantic. Oh, fantastic. Julia, what do you have? I feel like if I'm endorsing a baked good in the mode of Joan Didion, it should be dry and tasteful like a like a very elegant biscotti but i'm gonna endorse a super decadent like all-american cheerleader with pom-poms type dessert all right the blog smitten kitchen is a popular food blog it's very good it just has solid like bulletproof well-tested recipes on it and there is a recipe on it for the best birthday cake that is in fact the best birthday cake it's a it's a moist yellow buttermilk cake and it's basically the cake you want to bake if you, whenever you bake a cake, think, I kind of wish this cake had turned out more like a Duncan Hines cake. I'm too embarrassed to make a Duncan Hines cake, but I really just want a really moist, spongy yellow cake, except this one tastes faintly of um, lemon and tangy buttermilk rather than uh, Duncan Hinesian chemicals. But it is like spongy, moist, perfect, like rises perfectly, cooks great. And on the site, she proposes making it with a dark sour cream frosting, which is good, but quite tart and tangy. And uh, as a substitute, if you don't want a very sour creamy frosting, you can also try instant fudge frosting, which is my preference. But basically, this allows you to make at home a cake that looks like it belongs in the dictionary next to cake. Like it is just, it is the platonic birthday cake. It really is. It's great if you just want to make some plain old cakey cake cake to get you through the winter. I can't recommend this recipe highly enough. Oh wow, that sounds that sounds yummy. All right, well, um, inspired by all the Didiana or whatever you would call it, Didiana Yana, what would you call it? <laughs> Maybe you wouldn't. <laughs> I, I like oh, that. Geez. That sounds like kind of a, I don't know, mariachi band or something. Well, anyway, inspired by all of that, I'm going to endorse. Uh, I may have done this in the past, but I'm happy to do it again. A great essay by Joan Didion called "The West Wing of Oz." It's uh, 
among the best things, if not the best thing ever written about the Reagan White House. And what she captures so well is the relationship between a, an organization, a, a sprawling, super important organization, at the center of which is essentially a cipher, which is Reagan himself, someone whose executive control over the functioning of the U.S. government is, is minimal. And the relationship of that to the American empire abroad, specifically in Latin America. And it seems like an like a, a rhetorical or intellectual overreach to write about it in that way. She never says that that's exactly what she's doing, but it becomes clear over the course of the essay. But she pulls it off beautifully for never announcing it. I mean, it's, it's quite a, an act of uh, showing, not telling. And you, you feel it by the end of the essay that something about our policy in Central America and uh, specifically a disastrous and misbegotten policy in um, Central America had to do with the style of leadership and moral imagination at the, at the heart of the Reagan administration. It's one of the best things uh, written about the 80s, and it's one of my favorite pieces by Joan Diddy, and it's in her collection, Political Fiction. Check it out. It's fantastic. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cultfest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. When you wake up in the morning and the light has hurt your head, the first thing you do when you get up out of bed is hit that street running and try to beat the masses. Go get yourself some cheap sunglasses. Sweaters kind of tight She had a West Coast strut That was sweet as molasses But what really knocked me out Was the cheap sunglasses Oh yeah